Well, you can say hi if you want to. Hi, this is Howdy. Hello. Hi. <laughs> hi, this is Greg Lamont. Welcome to the Velocast. Nice, really nice, yeah. Hello everyone and welcome to the Velocast. Coming up on this week's show, John looks ahead to the various time trial events at this year's World Championships. Well, I nod and smile in much the same way one does when visiting an elderly relative in a care home as they retell their that time I won a phone-in competition to meet Larry Grayson from the Generation Game story for the umpteenth time. But before that, tis the season to be transferring. And while many of the big moves have been well known for several months, there are some changes in team personnel worth discussing as the 2020 season inches ever closer into view. It is a very exciting transfer season. I mean, some of this stuff's been telegraphed for ages. Um, you know, we've known about Nairo Quintana going to Arkea Samsic and that kind of thing. But there's been some some moves that not so much surprised me, but have, are going to confuse me even more deeply than they usually do. You know, you've got people like Jens Kukler going to Education First, um, and you've got our chum Nathan Haas going to Cofidis. So it's going to take me months to get used to those jerseys, and that's before we dig too deep into who's going where. Do you know, I was thinking, just looking through the transfer season and, and the names that we have seen on the move, and also what's happened across the 2019 season in terms of, of the races and, and the winners, and I think Columbia must be like Liverpool was in 1963, Every Sunday group ride in Bogota will be swarming with agents from World Tour teams just hoping to nab the next Egan Bernal. It's really funny, actually, because Killian was wondering online, um, you know, as he, as he settles into his new job, they've clearly let him loose with his thumbs and his phone again, uh, because he was wondering about the fact that there are so many young folk coming through, and I think we're on the cusp of one of those generations. You know, I don't think it's anything particularly about modern training. I don't think it's about exposure. I think it's just one of those generations where we're going to see some young guys coming through who just blow the doors off the folk who have come before. You know, the one that keeps springing to my mind is uh, the kind of Fignon, um, you know, slightly older, but Greg LeMond generation, you know, with Sean Kelly in there as well. Every so often one pops along. And they were there with Merckx as well, except Merckx overshadowed the rest of them so much that a lot of people who would have been once-in-a-lifetime talents actually were just in the shadow of the great Eddie. But I've got a feeling that, you know, as we move into the, tw- the 2020s, we're going to be in one of those golden ages of cycling. And you look at the people who are moving around, you know, they're really looking for a place now because these young guys are going to completely dominate. Well, I mean, I think one of the the themes, other than the the rise of bright new talent coming from places, of course, like like Colombia, is is rebuilding. And there's a couple of teams I think who are looking to to rebuild this mm-hmm. year. The, the the first, of course, is Movistar. I mean, they they've lost just about everybody apart from Alejandro Valverde, who's like Japanese knockweed. You just can't get rid of him. Um, but they, they're bringing in uh, Davide Villela and Dario Cataldo, plus, of course, Enric Mas from Deconic Quickstep. And just speaking of, of uh, Colombia, a, a young talent from Colombia called Juan Diego Alba. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're a team that really need to find some direction now. You know, they're still going to have Alejandro Valverde. He's probably two or three decades away from retirement, although he started kind of nibbling at the edges of whispering about it. But they've had that whole trident thing with a super strong bunch of domestiques below them. 
that just hasn't worked. I mean, the only thing that's won them really is the odd one-day race, which has been won by Valverde's you know, single-day excellence, or the team thing, you know, because there are so many of them in the top 10 that they win the team competition almost by default. I think this is a real opportunity for Eusebio Unzu to look to the generation after Valverde and also to put together a team that will actually serve a leader. What they need to do is find the next big GC thing, because they are a GC team. I mean, let's let's face it, they always have been. All of Inzu's teams have been focused on the GC. And bringing in, you know, the young Colombian, along with experienced old hands from Astana, I think is a move in the right direction. I think they've been, you know, the joke was, you know, take me to your leader. Well, we don't know who it is. They need to fix that because the power in the horse, you know, the, the firepower is there to be an absolutely magnificent GC team in the way that we've seen Jumbo Visma develop into or you know Team Ineos have been for ages and Ineos have got some interesting transfers as well but for Movistar this is an opportunity and these transfers actually make a lot of sense to me I think they'll be a stronger team for it next year well, I mean, clearly in terms of GC, they're putting all their eggs into the uh, Enric Mass basket as I don't see any other GC-esque names appearing uh, as yet. I mean, they, they may still yet pull out uh, a GC contender across the, the, the remaining months of, of 2019 and before the, the 2020 season really gets underway. It's quite interesting to see that um, a team that's actually folding at the end of this year, Wiggins Lacall, uh, Movistar have signed one of their riders, Gabriel Kulak, but he's actually a sprinter, which, you know, a, a British sprinter going to Movistar, a very, very Spanish team, left me scratching my head somewhat. Well, they've done it before with Jeremy Hunt, haven't they? Not that mm. one, you know, not the one with the Raymond slang and stuff. They actually, you know, the British sprinter in the Benesto jersey. So maybe, uh, maybe Eusebio's just having a bit of a flashback. Mm, possibly that. Uh, one rider I, I did want to to talk about going to, to Astana team you, you mentioned just there, uh, Alex Aramburu. Fantastic performance at the Vuelta. Sees him off to Astana from, from Cajarual. Yeah, apparently they'd been nibbling at him beforehand, but we said during the, the event, as did many other folk, the World Tour teams are going to be knocking his doors off and trying to get his, his signature on a contract. He was super strong, but also very, very clever during the, uh, during the Vuelta, so that's no great surprise. And he's going to be a huge asset. You know, he doesn't need to develop. He's already at a standard where he can contribute to a team. So it would have been, it would have been amazing to me if he hadn't landed a big contract this year. Astana... I'm not sure I saw him going there. You know, I envisaged maybe even a movie star move or something like that. But um, it's been a good development school for a lot of these guys, however much we like or dislike the uh, World Age Group Ironman Champions team. Uh, another team I think that are looking to to rebuild for 2020 are of course Sunweb given that uh, Dumoulin is, is off to, to Yumbo uh, they're a team which I feel is is also without a, a GC leader and, oh, and they Nico have for years yet now <laughs> Nico Roach after his couple of days in, in Reddit that the Vuelta uh, announced this morning that he's signed a two year contract extension but that aside, it, it does seem like Sunweb have gone from being this big GC team headed, of course, by Tom de Milan to, I'm not quite sure exactly. I mean, they've got 
Atias Benut coming from, from Lotto Sudal. They're also signing um, Suterlin and Nico Dens. So I, I don't quite see what the, the personality of that team is going to be going forward. I think it depends on Benut. We've seen him develop as a potential GC rider. Um, for me, in my head, he's still a single-day rider, though. Mm, mm. You know, you think about his strong single-day performances, and he's your archetypal Belgian. You know, he's a hard man who can go in the worst conditions, on the worst surfaces, and perform well. But he's been nipping up the GC competition. And we've been talking about him, not in the same breath as the established GC contenders, but certainly as a, a kind of solid top 10 performer uh, in, in recent months. I really hope he doesn't fall into that, I hate to say it, Nico Roach trap, of suddenly thinking he's a three-week GC contender and throwing away what could have been a well-developed Palmares and other aspects of the sport. But he's got to be Sunweb's best bet for next year with Tom de Milan going away. But I'm, I'm kind of like you. I think they've lacked focus without Tom this year. I can't see them getting that focus back with the folks they've signed. Mm. Uh, well, I mean, just to, to counter, I guess, before somebody else says it, the, the argument of um, Ty Spinut potentially falling into the, the Nico Roach camp for, for Nico Roach, we offer up Geraint Thomas, who um, I know you're still upset about that. You know, going, one, two or three Paris Roubaix by now, at least, and a Fleiss a Wallon or something. The swine winning the Tour de France like that, how dare he? Yeah, um, it's a real come down, you know, compared to the classic career he could have had. Well, in some quarters, it's absolutely the case. <laughs> <laughs> I don't mind admitting it. Uh, speaking of, of Yumbo with, with Tom de Milan going there, of, of course, and, and our chum uh, Derek Troy looking to Yumbo and I has been saying this in fairness to him for, for several months now, Yumbo being the, the big team for next year to, to threaten the seemingly all-conquering uh, Team Ineos who we presume will be back to something approaching what we, we know them to be after that bizarre performance at, at the Vuelta but we're looking at their transfers um Nielsen Paulus and Danny van Poppel are leaving the squad for EF Education First and Wanty Group Gobert, respectively. It kind of feels like Yumbo could end up with, with too many leaders and not enough domestiques there. Yeah, well, any of us are trying to trump them in that by signing a team who are exclusively made up of Grand Tour winners, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. Because um, Richard Carapaz is going there. Woot Pools is, is leaving for Bahrain. Um, is making noises about being a step up to, to GC leader. Uh, meanwhile, Mikel Lander is going to Bahrain, talking about being a sole leader. So, that, I mean, that's going to be something worth watching. Um, Yumbo and Ineos are going to be the two juggernauts next year. Um, Yumbo, we talked about them being a bit weak at the end of the Vuelta in terms of being able to follow through for the entire stage. With a full complement of riders, without that bad luck at the start, them and Ineos are just going to be locking horns in, in every single race that they've both got aspirations to win. And I think they're both at the stage where individual transfers, they're not actually looking at the riders they're transferring as as individuals, they're looking at how, how they're bricks that fit into the wall, if you see what I mean. Um, I don't see any missteps. I think, you know, getting rid of Woot is... Sorry, being transferred to another another team is just the right move. I think the folk coming in and out of both teams we're, we're going to see formidable units next year. I mean, they're clever, clever management teams. Ineos, I think, are over the top of their curve. 
but are still, you know, the force in, in GC contenders. But Yumbo, I think, are going to take it to them next year. I think we're in for an absolutely cracking Grand Tour season next year. And none of these transfers change my mind about that. I mean, looking at Enios, of, of course they are GC-focused, but you know that theme that I potentially, you know, focused on the, I, I didn't potentially focus on I did focus on it but I'm just saying that they have the, the potential to to look like they've got too many um, GC guys and not enough domestiques you could definitely say that as as you mentioned of, of Timo Eneos as well Woot Pools Vassal Kirienka Christian Canis David La Cruz Diego Rosa Kenny Elisond Sebastian Hanau I mean th- these are all names that are apparently going to, to other teams I mean some of them haven't announced which teams they're they're going to, but it is likely that they are going to end up in, in team kit other than Ineos next year. Yeah, but you know, and none of these guys are the guys that are expected to be in the top step, are they? No, but so, what I, I mean, mean is that it, it, they haven't signed, or there certainly haven't been any official announcements as to which riders are going to come in and, and replace that that handful who are not even going to be the GC guys. They're not even going to be the last mountain domestique for Chris Froome or Egan Bernal or Richard Carapaz. They're, they're going to be the guys that are doing the, the real hard graft work leading up to that final climb. There's there's a lot of names there who've played important roles across the, the, the last few seasons for Ineos. And it's a sign of the quality of that team, actually. And this is why I keep going on that their biggest performance enhancer is money. Most of these guys will go to other teams as nominal leader. You know, that, that, that's the secret of Ineos, is having massive checkbooks. So I don't think they'll fall short on the mountain stages. You know, the guys that are coming in, we've seen their ability to, to not do a movie star. You know, to focus on particular riders for particular, particular races. Now, that fell apart at the Vuelta. Uh, for whatever reason, I mean, we will we can talk about that next year. You know, when we see how they do in next year's well, or whether they refocus. But usually, they have a singular focus, and it stands them in good stead. The folk they bring in will be well paid. You know, they'll be properly compensated for their job, and they will be amongst the best. The guys that are leaving have been great, but people like Elisond, for example, I love Kenny, he's a really good rider, I I enjoy watching him, but he really kind of disappointed, didn't he, at Sky? You know, so I I think they're just having a clear out and bringing in some, uh, if you'll excuse the phrase, fresh blood. (laughs) Phrase excused. Uh, Now, of course, we, we can't possibly give a comprehensive look at everybody who's moving there are literally dozens of, of names that, that are going from one team to, to another uh, one transfer that actually isn't a transfer that I think we should talk about before we move on is Sam Bennett who we, we lauded right across the, the Vuelta and indeed in our, our um, wrap up show at, at the end of the race what a great event it had been for, for the Irish sprinter but this is an absolutely hellish situation that he finds himself in it's been somewhat of an open secret that he's not only wanted to go to the coin quick step to replace Elio Viviani but negotiations were well underway and everyone was scratching their heads as to why this hadn't been uh, announced as, as a done deal uh, but it, apparently it, it seems that simply to be selected for races like the Vuelta, Bennett had to agree verbally to, to stay at, at Bora. And now the UCI have stepped in to say that, yes, they've looked at the, the situation and have said, no, he can't move to the Coinic Quickstep. 
Yeah, um, very similar situation to Sousa, actually, isn't it? Except um, for the completely opposite reason. Yeah, um, in as much as there's a verbal contract, um, Sousa was allowed to move for, you know, whatever sum of money. Um, Bora seemed hell-bent on, on keeping hold of Sam, despite, I think, criminally underutilising him. I think, you know, you look at his Palmares this year, could have been much, much bigger. You know, he's got... Absolute bucket load of wins under his belt. I think if he'd been used more, you know, if he hadn't been in the same team as Pascal Ackerman, and that's nothing against Pascal. Pascal's performed absolutely brilliantly as well. Um, but Bora want to hang on to him. But if they do hang on to him, he's going to be super demotivated. It seems almost self-defeating to me, um, unless you just don't want to give somebody the opportunity to take more points away from you. And for Sam, you know, the opportunity to go a quick step would be absolutely huge because we've seen how prepared they are to sacrifice for their teammates on any given day, you know, if their teammate's in a better position. So I, I really think one of the McQuaid's, his agent, has has clearly taken a misstep. This should have been cleared up ages ago. They shouldn't be arguing about this now at a point where the rider should be able to focus on what he's going to do next year, start to get to know his new teammates, You know, start to come up with a game plan with the management team, start to look at his calendar, make the plans for his A, B and C goals. And meanwhile, Sam's in limbo. He's got no idea what's going to happen. And I'm really disappointed. I think this has been a real year of breakthrough for Sam Bennett. He's been knocking at the door for ages, we've seen some big wins from him in previous seasons. This year he's arrived at the very top flight of sprinting you know, there have been months where he is not even arguably, just the fastest man in the world, compared to you know, the likes of Gaviria who's, who's dropped off a wee bit um, he needs to get his head ready for 2020, it's going to be one of the pivotal years of his career and this is just, I mean it's a mess for Sam, I hope it gets resolved quickly but if I was him I'd be looking for a new agent or a better lawyer I think well, I mean, I'd be pointing my lawyer to to argue an agreement under duress. You can't have a, a verbal agreement or even a written signed contract, which is signed under the the auspices of yeah. You get you got to sign this, otherwise you don't get to race at the Vuelta. Yeah. That's that's there's no way that that contract would be valid. Never mind just a, a handshake and a verbal agreement. So, like yourself, I'm I'm really worried for for Sam Bennett at this point in his career, and and just hope it all gets, gets sorted as quickly as possible for everybody concerned. Yeah. No, I think you're you're 100 percent right. He needs to focus on next year. He's not getting the opportunity to do that. And, you know, there's, there's no sign that it's actually clearing up. It, it, it feels like it's going to drag on for ages. It just needs sorted so that Sam can, you know, if he's going to stay at Bora, he needs a calendar where they'll commit to giving them the support. But it feels to me like that door's shut now. You know, it doesn't feel right. Um, so it's, it's a difficult time for a rider who's been absolutely magnificent this year. The late season one day races in Quebec and Montreal have always seemed a bit as incongruous in the World Tour as seeing RuPaul at a Trump rally. But as indicators of form for the forthcoming World's Road Race, they often make for telling tea leaves at the bottom of cycling's prophetic cup. It's really funny actually because every year I love these races. They're brilliant races to watch, fantastic terrain, good crowds. The riders usually you know, make a good show of it. Particularly uh, McMatthews, who's who's done really well again, winning in Quebec. But it just it does my head in watching the well, and then suddenly you go, hang on, they're in Canada. What's going on here? 
It's like, do you remember they were going to have a Chiro prologue in Washington or something once? Oh, yeah, yeah. That was 20... Well, I think the news came out about 2010 or something like yeah. that, but they were looking to do it in 2018, I think it was. Yeah, and the tour, the tour prologue was going to be in Japan. Mm, mm. It's kind of that level of incongruity, because they're racing on one continent, and then suddenly they bugger off across the Atlantic. Yeah, I mean, as I said, they, they always have felt a bit kind of odd and... Oh, Canada. Oh, OK, fine. Because we don't ever focus on, on Canada, but as you say, they, they are Unless entertaining. you're talking about Blackface or something. Let's not go there. Let's not go there. How difficult is it to get through your teens and the early part of your life with not dressing up as a person from another race? Who knew it was so difficult? Anyway, getting back to the, the racing, Greg Van Avermaet taking uh, Montreal and, as you mentioned, uh, Michael Matthews taking Quebec. But there's a lot of performances there, as I mentioned in the, the little intro, that that really are a marker for, for how riders are, are faring in the, the week before the, the World's Road Race. Yeah, I mean, if you, you look um, at the people who were riding well there, combined with you know some of the some of the races that are happening in Europe, um, we're we're coming up with I would say three top favourites for the worlds, and we'll do a full worlds preview later in the week, uh, probably on Friday. But there are riders here who are performing at a level where you know that we're in for an absolutely cracking world championship road race in Yorkshire. You know, Michael Matthews winning again, Peter Sagan not just finishing on the podium there, but active, you know, in, in Quebec. Greg Van Avermaet wins one of them, uh, plays, places in the third place in the other. Uh, Tim Wellens is do, riding well. Michael Woods is, is riding well. Tom Yelta Slater. Julian Alaphilippe, of course, is in the top ten. Tim Wellens, Jesper Stuyven. All of these races indicate an absolutely packed top end at the front of the World Championships. So whilst good races in their own, I must confess I've been watching them with one eye on who's in the kind of form where they're going to scare the opposition at Yorkshire. And both of these races, you just need to look at the top 10 and any of those folk could be top 10 in the worlds as well. So I think we're in for a real treat next weekend uh, on the roads of Yorkshire because there's clearly loads of folk whose legs are on fire. Good grief, I've just noticed something. That's a first. Go for uh, it. Montreal, 15th place, Carlos Betancourt. That's like seeing Lord looking on the guest list for a royal wedding. How did that happen? He's one of those riders, isn't he? I mean, he's he's such a classy rider. I hate to bring up the, the Evil Hammer series with its point system that befuddles my brain on a regular basis. But he'd done really well in that. And there have been flashes of the rider he could have been. You know, he is such a good rider. He's just so patchy and seems to have that difficulty staying at racing weight. But on the right day, you know, he's had team support and performed incredibly well. Just above him, you know, Adam Yates, and both of them with Julian Alaphilippe. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, Bettinger was just off the front of that lead group in Montreal. But by just off, I mean like five seconds off. He was nearly there. Um, he's not in my favourites list for the world, but um, he is a classy rider. I, I really expected more of him. And I think uh, he's left a lot of Palmares on, on the restaurant floor over the years. <laughs> and speaking of world's form, Trek, Segafredo's fortune seemed to be taking a late season turn for the better as Edward Towns took his first win since 20. 
2017 at the Primus Classic, an event I am somewhat disappointed to learn as a race in Flanders and not a greatest hits tour for that weird San Francisco twisted funk trio who gave us Tommy the Cat, Winona's Big Brown Beaver and the South Park theme tune. I actually like Primus. I really like Primus. I've seen Primus live. They're excellent. Yeah, very loud. <laughs> well, of course. Um, great win for Towns with the aforementioned Pascal Ackerman just in, in close attendance. You know, if the if Towns had been overhauled, Ackerman would have taken the win. Um, the usual names up there. Um, you know, Dylan Grunewagen's up there. Uh, Jacqueline did solo was in eighth. Uh, Mike Tennyson was you know. He managed to, to finish in the same group as his erstwhile leader, Dylan Grunewagen. The important thing for me, though, was three guys. And these names are going to come up a lot on Friday, so bear it in mind. Matthew van der Poel put in an attack and only two people were able to follow him. And those two people were Persigan and Greg van Avermaet. Um, van der Poel, after the race, rode another 100 kilometres because he wants to up the distance that he's riding to match the distance of the World Championships. Because everybody's been saying, oh, Van der Poel, you know, he's great and uh, he's, he's been absolutely brilliant on the road, but the distance of the Worlds will, you know, he just won't be able to cope. You know, it'll, it'll just do for his legs. It's a completely different animal. So, of course, what does Matthew do? Every race he's been doing, he's been doing an Eddie Merckx and chucking in an extra two or three hours at the end of it to get used to riding that distance. So, Persigan, Greg Van Avermaet, the usual suspects, they were performing well. Brilliant win for turns, but those two guys were the ones I was keeping my eye on, again, with a a view to the worlds, because it's that time of year, you know, as far as road races go, I'm focused on one thing, and it's the women's and men's road races this weekend. But, Matthew van der Poel stunned us all already this year. It's one of the hot favourites for the world's road race, and he's taken it seriously. You know, to perform that well and then instead of getting on the team bus and going back for, you know, a massage and a, you know, a relaxing day with your teammates at the, at the hotel, he's putting in an extra 100k. He means business for the worlds. So this was a great race in itself, but again, just a taster for what's to come. And just up in my anticipation, you know, this is going to be a magnificent world road race. The course is great. The crowds are going to be amazing. And all of these riders coming to the boil at just the right time. I'm, I'm, I'm gagging for it, mate. Yes, just a little side point here. Can just picture the scene: Matthew Van der Poel with the team gets to the end of the race, and he says, "Lads, I'll see you back at the hotel. I'm just going to ride another 100 kilometres." Matthew, you're not making any friends here. I mean, can you can you imagine the looks that he would have been given by everybody else as he trots off to do an extra 100 kilometres in the air, going back on the bus? Everybody must hate him in that team. Uh, if it's good enough for Big Ted, it's good enough for Matthew. That's a fair point. Well made. The, that's, I mean, that is, it's the Merck scheme, isn't it? He used to he used to finish races and then, you know, ride back to the hotel the long way. He used to do miles before races. And in a day before the kind of scientific training, which is definitely a benefit to these young guys, you know, it may be one of the reasons why we're seeing them develop earlier. You've got someone who is, it, it harks back to the old days yeah, of, of Merckx, where the simple thing is, you just put the miles in. And he knows he's got that distance to ride and he's taking it seriously. That's really impressive to me because it would have been so easy for him to think, Look at what I've won this year. You know, these road guys, they're a bunch of Jessies compared to us. We've both come on and absolutely dominated this year. But no, he's taking it seriously. He's treating it with respect. 
super refreshing. The UCI's latest innovation, or gimmick if you're feeling slightly less than generous, was given its first Worlds outing this weekend as teams consisting of three men and three women competed for the title of Team Time Trial Mixed Relay World Champions. The Dutch team of Bauke Mollema, Jos van Emden, Koen Bowman, Lucinda Brand, Amy Peters and Rihanna Marcus claimed the gold with Germany and Great Britain rounding out the podium. But what did we make of the event itself? Do you know, I really liked it. I expected to hate it. Well, hate's too strong a word, but I expected to look at it and go, here we go again. But I thoroughly enjoyed it. You know, making it two separate teams of men and women meant that we were able to see both teams going full gas. Because however much I enjoy, and, you know, women's racing has been my favourite kind of racing, actually, for the last two or three years. I think each year my favourite race of the year has been a women's race. I love watching, you know, the, the strong women's time trialists perform as well, you know, because they've really developed and come on. But there's no doubt that the men are a wee bit quicker. Now, if they'd done a mixed time trial where everybody was in the same team, it would have been an interesting competition because the pacing and the allocation of effort and stuff would have been really good. Uh, it would have been super interesting to watch how they did, you know, the, the through and off and who was strongest and all that kind of stuff. But having it as two separate races, it showed you both the men and the women on the absolute limit, you know, really tanking it in a time trial. It showed that the skill level in both was absolutely magnificent. And we saw that actually in the junior women's time trial this morning. But also, it was a real showcase for the women's sport. You know, so I actually think the UCI, I've, I've, I've hit onto something here. The only thing that could improve it for me, and Adam Blythe tweeted about this earlier, is this, a real innovation would be make every World Tour team have a women's team. And you could keep the team thing with the team time trial, but just have them, uh, you know, have the, the quick step ladies as the second half of the relay or whatever. I really enjoyed it. And people that moan about it tend to be old codgers. You know, Pat Lefebvre had a moan about it. Johan Brunel had a moan about it. Seriously, who gives a toss what they say? This was a race that celebrated both men's and women's cycling. The team spirit was there for everybody to see in all of the teams, you know, be it Great Britain or, you know, the photo of the Dutch squad after they won is magnificent. They're all over the moon about it. So bring it on. This is just going to develop and develop. I loved it. I can't imagine that there's anything that Patrick Lefebvre or Johan Brunel have said that hasn't been a moan since, what, about 2005? They're both misogynistic old dinosaurs, yes. is what they are. You know, that, that that rider's got a vagina, they can't go fast. <laughs> I mean, I haven't, I haven't said that, and I totally agree with, with Adam Blythe's tweet, That that's... Absolutely the way it should be. Uh, and I know that there will be people say, yeah, but there are reasons that every World Tour team shouldn't be forced, blah, 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 blah. I think as a point of principle, it would be fantastic. The event itself, I like you, John, I thought it was superb. It did, in a way, though, remind me of like a, a, a dance from 1950s America where there was some prim old school ma'am putting a 30 centimetre ruler in between the, the two people who were who were dancing to ensure there was no shenanigans going on. Yes, you can dance together, but not too closely. Yes, you can race together, but not too closely. We'll have to separate you out into two two batches of three. But and and I would have preferred it if if it had just been a, a mix, a, a complete mix, um, because it would lead to much more interesting tactics. But these are but minor quibbles. I I thought it it was a great event. 
we've have of course seen uh, at the the European Championships where where the Dutch squad also won. Uh, but I I think we, we should look forward to to seeing more of these. I, th- I thought it was it was great. One slight fly in the ointment. Uh, Jose Bean tweeting about this apparently this morning, saying that seventy percent of all the world's prize money was handed out in that race. Yeah, it's astonishing, isn't it? Isn't it? Um, they had the, the team time trial mixed relay. The total prize money was 167,000 euros, um, which is just absolutely gobsmacking. Uh, you know, the, the total prize money for the men's, junior, and women's is 48,000. Um, the men's and women's elite time trial, the, the total prize money is 7,950 euros. Uh, it's just, you know, the, the men's elite and women's road races. For first place, you get 7,750 euros. The total prize fund for each race is 16,250. And the total prize money for the team time trial mix really was 167,000. I thought it was a misprint. <laughs> Yeah, and as as Jose points out in her tweet, the, the, the irony of this is that the UCI cancelled the team time trial at the Worlds because apparently they didn't want to pay appearance fees. So they've they've done unless of course the the, the folks who were uh, asking appearance fee money were asking for millions upon millions, in which case it is a, a, a net saving for the UCI. But it does seem very very odd that they've cancelled the team time trial because of exorbitant. Uh, fees, appearance fees, but yet have dedicated seventy percent of all the prize money just to one race. Yeah, I think I, I think in essence what they were trying to do was was match the the amount each rider got uh, to the men's and elite women's road races, but um, or men's and women's elite road races rather. Sure. But it does seem dramatically unbalanced. Um, so it's the UCI. I mean, we we had the, the the delight of watching a video of the guy out with the sock measuring calipers, telling somebody their overshoes were eight millimeters too long or whatever. The UCI is just mental sometimes, and I think your head explodes when you try to understand them. <laughs> and this is one of those circumstances. I mean, I've just got I've got no idea who came up with that. You know, did they did they collect the wrong cell in the spreadsheet? Was there a wee message coming up saying your formula is not valid? It just it makes no sense. No. Uh, speaking of making no sense, you know you must be going fast when you can take a wrong turn in a time trial and still emerge with the best time. Russia's Aguil Garirva was able to take the junior women's time trial title in Yorkshire with full three seconds to spare over Shreen van Andruj from the Netherlands, despite her unscheduled deviation. My heart was in my mouth watching that this morning. Um, you've got a course which is... Extremely technical. I mean, extremely technical. On perfect dry roads, it would be a challenge to get it right in terms of both the pacing, because the terrain's varied uh, in elevation, and also in terms of taking the right line through the corner. And there's enough corners that getting the wrong line a few times could cost you the entire race. You know, I remember Chris Boardman used to work out exactly what pace he could take a given corner during his preparations because all of those half seconds and seconds make up what could be a, a winning margin at the end. So it was really difficult. Eleanor Backstead, who finished in, in bronze, had a really hairy, hairy slide in a corner early on and it was a magnificent bit of, one, both luck, but also just impressive bike handling that she managed to hang on. Um, and she was in touch 
right up to very close to the end. I think she was actually a, a bit quicker than she'd planned, maybe at the first split, just due to the adrenaline of that early slide. But Gariva, just in sight of the finish, looking strong, looking like she's going to have a margin of maybe 20 seconds. Um, I think what happened was the marshal beckoned for her following car to come off. Uh, you know, they, they peel the car away just before the finishing straight and she followed that instead and went straight on. And it, it reminded me of, was it Robert Miller at Alp DS who did the same thing? Except he had enough of a gap that he had time essentially to, to go and have some, you know, raclette or something and come back and, and go up and finish the thing. But she could have lost it. You know, it was it was, she was strong, she was dominant, but it was so still tight enough that, that everything was at stake. But she managed to to keep the heat, swing out, pull the bike round in, in short order and get up to the finishing straight and still finish with the win. Um so a brilliant win for the the women's individual time trial on a difficult, difficult course and a real demonstration of the depth of the women's sport just now. You know, they went fast. They were technically competent. The pacing of the, the top folk was magnificent. It was just a, a showcase of the talent that's going to come through once the you know the, the names that we're used to seeing, which we'll see in the time, the women's elite time trial on Wednesday, starting to age a wee bit. There's a big pool of talent bubbling under, and Gariva was was first amongst a, a very very talented group of time trialists this morning. Very impressive. And what was the question you posed regarding this event in in the show notes? Uh, oh yeah, why is it half the distance of the, the junior men's? Well I've considered this and you have four options uh, A, their ovaries will fall out Yep. B, they need time to make themselves look nice for the podium ceremony C, half the distance means only dishing out half the price money and that can be wholly justified on under those terms. Or D, the UCI is a fundamentally sexist organisation where women's sport is only ever indulged for the sake of something approaching a quiet life and is stuffed to the rafters with failing upwards crusty middle-aged white men who long for the days before universal suffrage. You know, it, it's absolutely baffling to me. Um, Al, on one of our long-term subscribers on Twitter, was saying to me that uh, he really struggles to think of any other race where, or any other sport where, in endurance terms, the women's races are shorter. I just don't understand it. You know, I've had some people say to me they, they like the shorter distances because it makes for more exciting racing. And that's fine. It's valid, you know, yep. But, you know, meet in the middle. Reduce the distance of some of the men's races, increase the distance of some of the women's. Differentiation on the basis of sex in the 21st century shouldn't even be something we're talking about. You know, you look at women winning ultra-endurance races, you know, the transcontinental this year, ultra-endurance races against men. You look at, um, you know, the performances of, of women in road racing. It's been hugely exciting, but it's obvious that the distances are just a fraction of what they're capable of doing. And to have a junior women's race that's barely enough for a warm-up, 14 kilometres for a world champions jersey, while, you know, the junior men are riding 28 kilometres. These are distances that are, you know, that are a drop in the ocean for, for these riders, riders of these calibre, who will go out and do longer training rides on their rest days than they were racing today. I, I genuinely think it's an insult to say, oh, you know, these junior women, they'll get the vapours if we make them go over 20 kilometres. We better knock it back a bit. 
you know, you'd be as well having somebody, somebody pointed out to me, I can't remember who it was, you'd be as well having somebody at your local Club 10 standing at mile six and a half going, right, that's it, you're a girl, you've got to stop. It's just, oh. Don't, don't give cross. people ideas, John. <laughs> Seriously, don't be giving people ideas. Uh, moving on then to a, a much more respectable distance for a time trial, a technical 54-kilometre course from North Allerton to Harrogate will be faced by those elite men seeking to wear the rainbow bands in time trials across the 2020 season. But amongst those taking to the start line, which of the favourites do we think are likely to take the gold? I think on the on the website it said that the distance was 148 kilometres or something. Wow, that's that's a time trial and a half. That's a proper time trial. <laughs> that's from back in the days when the team time trial in the world used to be 100 kilometres. That's when men were men and sheep were nervous. That's the kind of distance you want a time trial over. None of these... I mean, 14 kilometres. Yes, yes, yes. The warm-up yes, will be yes. longer than the race. Get, get, get back to the ranch. Come on. Chop, right, chop. Okay. Um, I talked about how difficult the women's junior race was to pace and the men's which is or junior men's which is going on as we record just now we don't know who's won that yet um hellishly difficult there's very little flat road for somebody just to get in a big gear and churn it round uh, there's difficult corners you know Jan Bacalance is talking about how he thinks the circuit's actually dangerous both for time trial and for road racing and he's a you know he's an old an old hand who knows a thing or two about a, a road race or a, a time trial circuit important thing is They'll have to pace it perfectly. It'd be so easy in the first half of this as you gradually climb to the peak, which is at about 36 kilometres, I think, um, to just overcook it and lose it all in the second half. You could blow it in a corner the way that we saw Eleanor Backstead do, or so nearly do this morning. So it takes an expert time trialist, but there's also the opportunity for someone who's a a good all-rounder and who can take advantage of the fact that it's not a just chuck it in the big ring and, and, you know, put your head down and see what happens, of course. You add to that, I think we're in an era where the big dogs of time trialing, if you like, are kind of slightly absent. You know, you, I'm used to you and I sitting down and me boring you witless about the relative merits in a given course of Fabian Cancellara, Bradley Wiggins and Tony Martin. I mean, those were the three names in that we used to just churn out year after year for who was going to win the World Championships. I think this is wide open. You know, you've got people like Tony who on a good day can still do a good ride, but he's not the force he was. Cancellara Wiggins, they're gone, and nobody's really stepped into that space. You know, you've got people like Victor Campanertz, who's world record holder, but looks to have gone off the boil. Uh, you've got Rohan Dennis, who might, you know, just give up halfway through and bucket off to the beach. Um, you've got really. Surprising it depends whether he's got the right bike and right skin suit. That's the the, the uh, determining factor, apparently. Well, the bike is apparently a, a, a classic in cycling history. It's a, it's a it's a ringer. It's just a blank painted trek, apparently. Mm. Um, so you know, and you've got young guys coming through like uh, Remco Evanepoel, who are just rewriting the rule book you know national time trial champion so I think it's absolutely wide open I've got a handful of guys who I think could win uh, Rohan Dennis Campanerts amongst them um, but I I really think Remco Evinopol is going to win the world time trial championships at the age of 20 
No, I agree it's with you. When, yeah, when when Derek and I were, were talking just uh, a few days ago, that's exactly what I said. Despite all the big names round about him, I think uh, Ivanapol's gonna gonna take the title and could conceivably do the double. Mm. Mm. You know, we were talking about the three guys that uh, you know are, are going to feature in the the preview we do on Friday. You could add Ivanapol to that. You know, the way he won San Sebastian was absolutely magnificent. So, I mean, you've got guys who are are impressive. You know, we saw um, Chad Hager win a time trial in the Giro. Um, you've got Yves Lampert, who performed absolutely magnificent, uh, was second to Wout van Erteny's national championships. Primus Roglic, we know he can time trial a bit, you know. So uh, there are big names there, but my head is just going... Remco and Vanapol for the very name, the very reasons I mentioned when we were talking about the the actual profile. He's a strong, strong time trialist, but he's also a super capable roadman. So I think the twists and turns, the changes in elevation, will suit his his skill set to absolute perfection. And to to come through at twenty and win this will be a real statement. And if we've seen anything this year, it's real statements from young folk, isn't it? Mm. Uh, and for exactly the same reasons as we highlighted above and risking setting John off once again, the elite women will only tackle a 30km course which sets off from Ripon before heading south to the finish line in Harrogate. I mean, come yes, on. Just, just skip to the favourites then. We're, you know, if, if, you look at, if you look at the women who are, who are riding... You, I mean, Animate Van Vluten's the one that really leaps out. Uh, with Lucinda Brand, we saw was super strong in the the relay thing. Um, there's other folk in there that could conceivably go, but those those two for me uh, fight it out. Maybe add in Anna van der Breggen. But all of these women are capable of. Think about Lacoste last year with that beautiful finish. John, come on, focus, focus. You've said all this already. It's going to be an entertaining 30 kilometres. Um, it suits a varied rider, not quite as testing to pace as the men's, but Annemiek van Vleuten, I think, head and shoulders favourite, particularly with the, the recent injury to, to Ellen van Dijk, who's arguably the strongest women time trialist that we've seen in, in recent years. Uh, so it's going to be a good race. I just I wish it was a bit longer so we could enjoy it for a bit longer. It could actually be a Dutch podium. Com- uh, you know, no. Completely. I mean, you you mentioned the three riders who I think actually are going to be on the podium: uh, Van Vleuten, Anna van der Regen, and Lucinda Brand. Maybe not precisely in that order, although Van Vleuten, of course, is the out and out favourite. But yeah, it could be a very very Dutch elite women's time trial. Yeah, and the time trials are going to be fantastic. I mean, even if you're like Scott and you don't enjoy a time trial, the atmosphere is going to be unbelievable. Um, the course is interesting and testing and it's going to be fascinating to watch the various approaches, the pacing through the thing. So I think even if you're not a time trial aficionado, you know, get, get a cup of tea, get your feet up and, and watch these races because I think they're going to be cracking. Now, before we go, it is time for, for John once again to regale you with details of our very, very attractive Early Bird 2020 offer. Yep, it's it's the strongest start we've ever had to an early bird, I think, and I really need to say thank you to you all. We really appreciate it. 
We do an early bird every September and October, and it's fifty nine ninety, which works at slightly less than a fiver per month for all of the content that we produce through 2020. So please consider, if you enjoy the show, subscribing to the early bird. If you're a monthly subscriber, we thank you as well. Any way that you uh, help support the show is, uh, is really appreciated by us. But you can go to velocast.cc, click subscribe to the early bird, if you're an existing subscriber and log in first, your feed won't even change for next year. Once you've subscribed, you won't have to do a thing. The shows will just continue without any effort for yourself. If you're a new subscriber, when you log in, you'll get a simple feed, which is super easy to plug into your podcatcher. So, villacast.cc, early bird offer, we'd really appreciate it. Well, thank you for joining us today, providing I can shower off all the time-trialling ick I've been forced to endure for the past 30 minutes or so. John and I will be back on Friday to preview the Elite Road Races, and we hope you can join us for that in the next edition of The Velocast. Velocast.